All right. So what have you been up to, Sean? I disappear into the woods for a couple of weeks and then I come back and have no idea what's going on. You talk about the Romanovs all of a sudden. How did you get like into making this episode? Well, it's pretty funny because, you know, maybe I don't know how much you saw of it when you were in the backwoods uh, away from civilization, but you know, there was this international, nothing, nothing. <laughs> there was this international story about this Romanov wedding in St. Petersburg. And I found it really strange. And my, my partner, Maya and I were talking about kind of, you know, what a spectacle, weird spectacle it was to have this wedding <laughs> of so Romanovs bad. who, you know, I knew still existed, but barely, right? <laughs> and so I saw this wedding in the news. And then I, I, Maya shared this wonderful picture with me of this, one of the people who went to the wedding, who looks like a clone of Nicholas II, right? So that's kind uh -huh. of strange. And I was like, what's going on here? And then, and then on Facebook, um, I'm Facebook friends with our guest for this interview, Russell Martin, who works on, you know, listeners might remember he works on early modern Russia and recently wrote a book about Romanov weddings. And he actually attended the wedding. That's and, crazy. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, so, you know, why don't I see if he's interested in an interview? And he's, he was really excited. And then of course you were in the woods and I was thinking, you know, you know, what to do about this? Like, do I do it alone? And et cetera, et cetera. And then of course we have uh, Margaret, who uh, listeners are now being introduced to, who is an intern, another intern. And I asked Margaret to sit in and participate on the interview to give her some experience. So Margaret, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Margaret. <laughs> um, I, well, yeah, I'm a, I started off here just like cold emailing Sean because I was just a fan of the podcast. I'd been listening for months and every single week that I would listen, I would just feel like I was going to like my favorite class. I just am really excited. I would be like looking forward to listening to the SRB podcast. So I'm excited to, you know, that, <laughs> that I'm like on this team now of people that are trying to put <laughs> together. Like, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Living the dream. Um, yeah, and and also that I got to the that my first interview that I got to be a part of was this one was really fun too because well it gives me a chance to reconsider like how I understand Russian history and identity. Yeah, yeah, no, it, this is definitely in the interview, but I I should also explain. You know, Margaret emails me right, and I'm like, who's this crazy person? <laughs> and then she's like, she's like, can I I want to help out? And uh, and of course, my thought is, well, I have no money. <laughs> and and then and then we, I was like, you know, I don't have any money, but hey, if you want to, why not? And then um, we had a meeting because I wanted to see if you were crazy or not. Uh, and then, you know, after I figured out you were actually really serious and, and, and enthusiastic, I just offered like, okay, you can help out with the podcast and, um, and I'll, you know, give you some training. So that's kind of how the, the Margaret factor emerged <laughs> for all of you out there. And now I'm here. Hello, listeners. I'm happy to be speaking to you. Кто вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели, и привидя их 
Well, hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast and we'd love your support, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. So, Margaret, why don't you introduce our guest? Sure. Russell Martin is a professor of history at Westminster College focusing on autocracy, marriage, and power in the Romanov dynasty in early modern Russia. He's the author of many books and articles, including A Bride for the Tsar, Bride Shows and Marriage, Politics in Early Modern Russia. His most recent book is The Tsar's Happy Occasion, Ritual and Dynasty in the Weddings of Russia's Rulers, 1495-1745, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Russell Martin. So, Russell, it's nice to talk to you again um, and didn't expect to have you on uh, or at least have you back so quickly, but this interesting event occurred and you happened to go and you just returned from the wedding. Uh, you, I'm sorry, you returned from attending the royal wedding of the Grand Duke George Mikhailovich Romanov and Rebecca Romanovna Batarini in St. Petersburg, which was this interesting international story, particularly in the style pages, but also in the New York Times, et cetera. So how was just how was the experience of being present there? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on again so quickly. Uh, and, and thanks for the podcast in, in general. It's a really um, it's a really important resource. And I'm, I'm psyched that you're having me on uh, for this topic rather than, you know, for one of my books. Uh, because it, it is a topic, an event that you know, was, was widely reported. Uh, it was in Vanity Fair. It was in the New York Times, as you pointed out. Lots of European uh, newspapers covered it, even The Guardian. And uh, it got press in Russia like you can't believe, uh, which is interesting. And there's a certain degree of nostalgia involved with that, of course, and just the oddity of it. The, you don't get a royal west wedding in Russia very often. The last one was about 117 years ago. So it, it, it attracts attention. Um, it, uh, yeah, it, it, it was, it was a thrill to be invited. Uh, I have for, uh, 25 years or more, really, uh, depending on how you count it, um, served in a variety of capacities as a translator, um, as a sort of author of memos and other kinds of texts, and now as a member of the chancellery for uh, foreign media and communications. So whenever anybody who writes in the foreign language, and I hope it's English or French because they're the two that I know best, um, wants to communicate with the Imperial House, um, they'll either send it to me or they'll send it to the chancellery and then it gets bumped to me. And then I, I, I handle that. So requests for interviews, things like that. Um, and so I've been doing various things for the Imperial House for, for, for a long time. And so I was, wasn't sure I'd be on the list, of course, but, um, but as a member of the chancellery, I was hopeful. And so I did get, I did get invited and, uh, and, and I made a, an event of it. I brought my wife and daughter. They, 
they were able to uh, get the invites as well. In fact, my daughter was a, was a bridesmaid. And so her, her picture's all in, in Vanity Fair and all these other sort of really cool places. And she's, she, she, I think she has a collage of them. Um, pretty happy about that. Um, so it, you know, it, it, it was, it, it, it's a, it's a rare and interesting event uh, anyway, but for me, it pulls together actually, uh, you know, my academic and professional interest in royal ma- marriages. Of course, I study, I study the 16th and 17th centuries, 15th, 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, so th- this was um, a little bit out of my range, but uh, in terms of everything that was going on. It was a very, you know, it was a very traditional event as well as a very uh, modern event, which was one of the things that we could talk about, I guess. But uh, on one level, it was full of uh, clerics wearing vestments, the cuts of which go back a thousand years um, and reading texts that are just as old. And at the same time uh, involved, uh, events surrounding it and people attending it that were utterly uh, modern day and, uh, and, and current. So there was an interesting, you know, from a, from a liturgical and uh, ceremonial perspective, blending of the old and the new in a way that I thought was very successful, really. You, you can't uh, go back to the 17th century, although in some ways I can tell you some, some things they did actually do that. Uh, and but uh, generally speaking, they were trying to present in the form of a wedding ritual what the dynasty itself is trying to do in Russia at large, which is to be relevant, uh, to be modern, to be uh, traditional, to to be a link with the past, and yet very much uh, both feet in the present. And I thought that was really interesting how the choreography, if you like, of the uh, of the event. Um, emphasize that so how did but how i'm curious like how did you feel you know i imagine myself and maybe i'm not a good example but i imagine myself going to something like this and and frankly i'd be freaked out right (laughs) To to be around like all of these you know people who are a variety of kind of important types upper class whatever you want to call it uh you know and just being in that space it would cause me a lot of anxiety. So what was it like for you to be, you know, you, your wife and your daughter, your family being in this situation? Well, it was probably different for, for the three of us. Uh, my daughter was sort of uh, starstruck in some ways. My wife, uh, who's a, a New Englander uh, and everything that that means, uh, looked at it with, uh, with typical American uh, curiosity and distance. Uh, and then there was me who um, who knows some of these people and, and, and have met some of these people uh, before. And then there were some who I hadn't. So for me, for example, it was enormously uh, thrilling and also kind of cool uh, moment uh, at the reception before the wedding on uh, Thursday night uh, to meet uh, the Duke of Anjou, who is uh, to legitimacy and French legitimist is uh, Louis Vin, Louis the Twentieth. He is the person who would be king of France for most legitimists. There, there are actually other claimants, but he, he's got in my book the best. And so he came with his uh, his wife, his charming wife, 
and uh, I got a picture with him. And that was, I have to admit, that was that was when I sort of went over to my daughter's perspective on things and <laughs> and how cool is this, right? I got to meet the, uh, the man who would be king of Portugal, who I had a very nice chat with and, and had done some work uh, with in the past because he's very good friends with the Grand Duchess. Um, and I got to meet the king of Bulgaria. Um, a few other, you know, royals that we could talk about, I suppose, too. But those are the ones that sort of stand out, and that I was hoping to meet, and that were actually there. Uh, so, so, you know, it was it was a curiosity. I could step back from it and uh, look at it sort of antiseptically as a scholar would. Wow, look here, look who's here, and why, and analyze who showed up and who didn't. Um, but also, it was sort of a personal thing, since you know, I I, I work with. I work for a royal, you know, it's as, at least half of the time that I am doing work stuff is for for her. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there are some times when I have to set aside other things. I can't set aside classes, of course. They, they're waiting for me. But uh, there are times when I have to set aside something I'm writing for, for my own work to, to deal with something that's rather urgent um, all the time. And so, you know, I, I work for a royal been doing that for a while that part of it wasn't so glitzy but meeting a few of them was was something i was hoping to do and it was great to actually have that opportunity yeah so you're if you're working for the grand duchess what's the what's the grand mission here i mean what kind of work i mean in a time when there's not we don't ever hear about russian royals or royalty so that's a really basic question really kind of big question and, and a good one um what is the role of the imperial house in russia today so uh, the answer is uh, that the Imperial House sees itself as an institution, an historical institution, a legal institution uh, that uh, is connected to Russian history. Um, it is involved in a number of educational, cultural, and historical projects. Mainly that means that the, the head of the house or her son and now her daughter-in-law uh, appear at unveilings of uh, monuments, give speeches on important historical occasions, very much like what you see the royal family in in, in Britain in UK doing um, that sort of ceremonial role. Uh, but even more than that, in recent years, the Grand Duke himself, the, the groom at the, at the wedding, has created the Russian Imperial Foundation, which is a charitable sort of holding company in a way. Um, it sponsors all sorts of things. It got started actually with pediatric um, oncology. So uh, working with an archpriest up in St. Petersburg who was very much interested in creating hospices for, for frankly, terminally ill children. Uh, and, and they have done that. Um, the Grand Duke then spun that out into an entire structure uh, and that in his wife actually his current wife now um is the sort of director of it so they work together and what they do is they collect money they raise money and they distribute it through a number of channels all legal channels they're registered in the uk and, and in russia as a as a charitable foundation and what they do is largely at least originally what they were doing was trying to improve the training of russian doctors by getting them to the states or elsewhere in the west for continuing education programs but now they're involved in uh, helping to fund and facilitate in various ways 
the construction of new um, facilities for the terminally ill, and even moving beyond that now to to fund other kinds of uh, uh, charitable and philanthropic projects that are already existing and sort of just tagging on and giving support to them. It's a really important uh, uh, task that they've given themselves and fairly, um, you know, one of the better ones. I mean, other other royal houses, imperial houses in Europe have these kinds of foundations too, not quite like the, the Romanovs have. In fact, not quite as um, ambitious and humanitarian, you might say, as the Romanovs have, but it is something that royals uh, sometimes do. And uh, it's it's been uh, a great pleasure to to be involved in that too. Uh, for example, I uh, translated into English a, pro- a proposal that the foundation put together to try to get uh, ambulances uh, to transport uh, ill children, uh, suffering children from facility to, to facility, and even from where they live to hospitals or the hospice. And, and they and they got that grant. So um, things like that where the Imperial House is trying to do. But it, it's important to say that uh, the Imperial House, the descendants of the Romanovs are actually quite many, but the Imperial House itself is actually two people, now three people. It's the, the mother and the son, and now the daughter-in-law. Because of all of these other Romanovs that are out there, uh, who are are definitely descended from the imperial house, no doubt about that. And there, there are some who claim it and who aren't, of course. That's part of Russian history. But uh, they're not members of the imperial house. And the reason why is because the, uh, the the fundamental laws of Russia had a number of provisions about what constituted the imperial family. And one of them was that you had to marry equally. So these other Romanovs are descended from unequal marriages, uh, which means now uh, that legally they're not, they don't have rights of succession. What, what does it mean, e- equal marriages? Yeah, that's that's itself. Though, I mean, it's itself a thorny concept, but it, it comes from the German notion of Ebenbertigkeit, which which simply means equality of birth, um, meaning you have to, uh, Russian royals have to marry other royals, and that's an elastic. Uh, group really because it included, for example, all of these mediatized families from Germany that be- before the creation of the uh, the German Empire or the Confederation of the Rhine or the the German Confederate North German Confederation, all of those uh, states after the Napoleonic Wars at the, at the Congress of Vienna and a few other places, these families were recognized for the purposes of marriage to be equal because they once were. Uh, even though they were under the Holy Roman Empire, they were they were functionally autonomous, right? So, because the Holy Roman Empire was a fiction anyway. But yeah, but so these families then supply a lot of uh, of, uh, of spouses for other families that require you know equal marriages. So, for example, Nicholas II married uh, Alex of Hesse Darmstadt. Hesse Darmstadt is one of these mediatized families. Hesse Darmstadt is a tiny little speck, a couple specks really in the middle of Germany. Um, uh, why is it Royal? Well, because it was decided early on that these families would be, nobody doubts that the, you know, the, the Bourbons are Royal, even though there's not a French monarchy, nobody doubts that uh, the Hohenzollerns are Royal today. 
even though there's not a kingdom of Prussia or a German empire, right? So it's these little, little, little principalities that are now understood to be royal and from which a lot of uh, royals took their brides, including the Russians. So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have. I, I want to ask because you you mentioned a bit ago about how it, you made a comparison with the British royal family, right? But the British royal family is, you know, the 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 British state provides money for the British family. How does it work with the Romanovs? Because a, I think back to the way they were driven out of Russia and the conditions in which they they had to flee Russia. I mean, where does their their livelihood come from? I have to admit at the outset that I, I really am not privy to those kinds of uh, things. All I can say from the outside and very generally is that uh, uh, the state uh, accords her a lot of uh, recognition and knowledge and uh, acknowledgement as the head of the imperial house. So, the uh, she's invited by governors and by mayors uh, to visit their their spaces, um, their cities, their their regions um, all the time. She has, of course, been traveling much during COVID, but she's the imperial family is well over two hundred times uh, visited Russia since nineteen ninety one, and it's always at the invitation of someone there. Um, so there is a. a, a, a a tacit recognition of her position as much as anybody is willing to, to offer it. Moreover, that same recognition is quite uh, plain and obvious and official when it comes to the, uh, to the Russian Orthodox church. Uh, Patriarch Kirill has himself, uh, you know, called her the head of the Imperial house and uh, the rightful, uh, the Jure Empress. He doesn't use that quite words, but he calls her the head of the, definitely has called her the head of the Imperial house. And uh, the church is uh, 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 metropolitans, archbishops, bishops are among the people who often invite her uh, to come to Russia. So, so there's that. Um, as far as who funds that, um, I really uh, don't have the answer to that. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not being clever. Um, uh, I really don't know. I've, I've actually secretly wondered it, but also realized it's not a great question to ask. Um, uh, I imagine that uh, those people who are, who invite her are uh, footing the bill on some level, at least. I know that she has supporters in uh, Russian society, uh, individual citizens who, who help. And she has, of course, means of her own. Um, she lives in Madrid and uh, they once owned property in Paris and Saint-Briac in Brittany and uh, elsewhere. So, um, but I, but I just don't, I just don't know. But what I do know is that when she does arrive it's in Russia, it's almost always in an official capacity that's considered a, you know, officiali visit, right? Rather than a, rather than a private, a private visit. Now she, she sometimes does travel privately, but in 2013, just to use one example, she was uh, given the uh, Lavadia palace when it was still, Crimea was still part of Ukraine, um, to uh, to hold uh, the other great assembly of royalty that we could talk about with, involving the Romanovs, 
where lots of the same people who were at this wedding, not all of them, but some of them were, were, were there. And actually some people who didn't go to the wedding were there uh, to celebrate the, the 400th anniversary of the, of the dynasty. I, I didn't make it to that one, but uh, it was uh, really quite the first, really in a way, the first really royal gala that rushed, that, that was hosted in the former empire, you might say. So why don't you tell us a bit about who is Grand Duke George Mikhailovich Romanov and where does he fit in the – I mean, he's, the, he's considered the heir, right, to the house. So – but I, I, from what I understand, there's a bit of – there's also some pushback or dispute over this. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I guess. But uh, – well, first, who is, who is uh, George Romanov? Uh, uh, so he's the great-great-grandson of Kaiser Wilhelm II. His father, Franz Wilhelm, uh, was born in 1943, is uh, a descendant of Wilhelm II's sixth child, son, uh, Joachim. Um, And uh, so he's a direct lineal descendant of Wilhelm II. Wilhelm II actually had a large brood of sons, and so uh, he's one of many uh, in his generation. And the maternal line, he's a descendant of Alexander II. His mother, who is the current head of the imperial house, is descended from uh, Grand Duke Vladimir, who was born uh, in the Grand Duchy of Finland, which then was part of the Russian Empire, uh, just as the revolution uh, was uh, taking place. Uh, His father, Kirill, uh, was an officer in the Navy, was his ship was sunk out from under him in the Russo-Japanese War, um, and his father Vladimir was the brother of Alexander the Third, the next eldest brother of Alexander the Third. So what that means is that with the with the the deaths of all the males by the Bolsheviks of uh, descended from from Vladimir the Third. Excuse me, from Alexander the Third, uh, which is to say Nicholas the Second, his son, and his brother. Uh, that meant that the succession, which runs by primogeniture, uh, swings over to the next senior line, which is Vladimir's line, which is to say Maria's line, which is to say George's line. So uh, the, the the debate over all of this has to do really with a couple things. Um, Maria is a female, and the law and the law requires male primogeniture preferenced over female. It does pr- provide for female succession, but only in the absence of all males. The fact of the matter is, is that there are a lot of male descendants through the male line, but all of them are excluded by the fact that they're descended from unequal marriages, which is also required. So there's this sort of thing, well, if there are males around, why are we looking to a female, right? And that's really not meant to be sexist, although sometimes it is. It's really meant to sort of, um, uh, in a self-serving way, to sort of promote uh, these other members of, uh, or descendants of, 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 the, of the Romanov imperial house. There's also been some dis- some dispute over the wedding, uh, over the marriage of Maria's parents, the current head of the imperial house, her parents. Vladimir's uh, bona fides as a dynast is really not much in question, really. He's the son of a grand duke. Uh, but he married, Vladimir married uh, a, a princess. Her name was Leonida Georgievna of the House of Bagration, which is the royal family of Georgia. 
Now, the royal family of Georgia, as you probably know, Sean, uh, the Georgians were annexed into – Georgia was annexed into, into the Russian Empire the turn of the 19th century uh, by Paul I. And uh, uh, with that, what happened, of course, was that the royal family of Georgia – uh, in some measure became sort of assimilated with the Russian aristocracy. They never did, however, uh, renounce the royal title. Uh, moreover, uh, when the Grand Duke, before he met his wife, when the Grand Duke Vladimir uh, was, was asked by the King of Spain what the status of the Georgian royal family was, uh, and this again was before he met his wife, because one of the members of the Spanish royal family wanted to marry into that house, and uh, the Spanish at that time still had an equal marriage rule. Vladimir sits down and consults with some historians and comes up with an actual document that says, for the purposes of marriage, of marriage uh, the Georgian royal family should be treated as a mediatized family, so they're equal, right? The king of Spain went with that. And then he goes and meets the woman from that family, and marries her. And so some people say, well, that was self-serving, but it wasn't. He hadn't met her yet. Um, and some people say, well, whatever he said, the family was now a Russian aristocracy. It goes back and forth, very hair splitting. So there's, there's, this, um, there's this dispute about Maria's uh, dynastic status vis-a-vis her mother. I think a lot of that is, is, is nonsense um, and, and, and kind of uh, not just unlearned, it's a, it's a little petty. I'm impressed that you're able to keep all of those strands in your head. (laughs) Actually, it's just really something else. Um, So, you know, I was uh, in reading some articles about this wedding. uh, You were uh, quoted in the New York Times article on it. And it said that you served as an advisor for the ceremony. Did you have any role in terms of like, you know, I don't know, this is historically accurate versus this isn't or anything like this? Like, or you just like, did you have any connection to the ceremony? I, I did, but I wouldn't say that I was in any way a consultant on that. We have to remember that orthodoxy is not like uh, Protestantism or Americanized Catholicism. You don't really get to write your own vows in an orthodox service. There's the rubrics, right? And th- that's it. The Slujebnik tells you how you get married and th- everything is prescribed. Uh, so I, I wasn't – no one was able to sort of interfere on that. Uh uh, but I did write the um, the wedding program, which was uh, in English and Russian. Actually, it, I, I wrote both, but uh, the Russian is merely a translation of the English. Actually, I only, originally wrote it only in English, and then they said, well, we should have it in Russian too. So I did that. Um, but really what it was is um, a description, once it was given to me, of uh, what was going to happen during the wedding. So I, I had very little control on what at all of uh, what was going to happen. That was told to me. However, I had complete control on what this text would say. I had some guidance, though. The bride, who I very much like, and uh, she's incredibly uh, professional and organized. I just think she's going to be a huge asset to the, to the dynasty. Um, she, she actually interfaced a lot with me on this. For, so for example, she wanted, uh, it known 
uh, what the hymns were going to be during the great entrance when uh, first the Grand Duchess, and well, first actually when the Metropolitan arrived, then the Grand Duchess, then the, gr- the groom, and then the bride. And the, the choir was uh, given uh, hymns that I imagine that the, that the couple chose uh, because it wasn't actually part of the wedding service yet. But I was the one who looked at this and said, you know what, these are these are really interesting choices, and I think it would be useful to have the the um, the lyrics of these hymns spelled out so that uh, the message gets caught by the um, uh, you know, by the, uh, the non-Russian speakers. So I, you know, I I identified the hymn, but Bartnyatsky uh, was one of the um, main composers, and so I went and found the, um, which wasn't easy, the, the, the lyrics for some of these hymns and then uh, translated them into English. So there was, there was a bit of that going on. And, and I'm, yeah, I, I have to say the, the, um, they, they did a beautiful job of producing and printing the, 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 the program, which I'm kind of, kind of proud of. Um, yeah. Then uh, the night before the wedding, they came to me and said, well, the Metropolitan is going to give his sermon which I knew, and it was decided that um, they should have it in English translation. So I said, yeah, and <laughs> then they, they said, well, we want you to do that. So uh, at the end, of the, they gave me the sermon at the end, uh, well, the, the night before the wedding, after the, the, the reception, and I translated it into the wee hours. And uh, the next day at the wedding, um, uh, I was uh, I, I was unable to sit with my or stand because it's North Orange Church. You stand stand with my wife during the ceremony, which was uh, a bummer. But I was up on the clearos with the uh, uh, clergy, and at the time at the time of the sermon, I came out and someone uh, some subdeacon held a mic in front of me, and um, the Metropolitan read a couple paragraphs, and then I translated those paragraphs into English back and forth and back and forth. Um, and um, uh, it was funny because uh, afterwards, <laughs> uh, no, someone comes to me and says, well, the Metropolitan's frail voice is an older man, didn't really reverberate well in this cavernous uh, cathedral, St. Isaac's. Uh, and, um, th- but they could hear mine. I actually had a sense that I needed to really speak slowly, enunciate clearly. And so the director of the, of the chancery came up to me and said, can I, so, so can I have a blessing, Metropolitan? Because, you know, you're the only one we heard. <laughs> so after that, I was giving, you know, joking me and calling me, you know, my, your eminence. And <laughs> oh, and, and then uh, let me just, uh, just the, 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 the trifecta of all of this was that the, the, the bride asked for my daughter to be uh, one of the bridesmaids, which meant that she got to hold the train um, and get in, uh, you know, her picture in Vanity Fair. And that, it, it, it was a, it was, uh, I'm so um, honored, frankly, by that um, more than anything else, uh, because it was a acknowledgement, not just of me, but of, of my family and, um, and a wonderful memory for, for her. So, um, so yeah, we, we, we participated in, in, uh, in various ways, but I have to say also, and, and this is crucial, uh, the, the couple and uh, the Grand Duchess herself in the, in, in the trans- chancellery were surrounded by a number of very, very able people 
who did a, a very, very good job on a very complicated uh, project. It, it reminded me uh, of of a certain, if you don't mind me being this way, of a certain beauty that comes from devotion. These people did this out of devotion to the imperial house. Not because they're conservatives, not because they're Russian nationalists. I'm sure there's all of that going around in Russia, maybe even here or there. That's not, that's not what I saw. I, I saw um, selfless uh, devotion of energy, expenditure of energy to, to, um, to make this happening where I, I thought it was inspiring. I, I, it was hard for me as an American not to, remember a time having studied some American history uh, when that kind of um, that kind of ethos existed here for the institutions we have, you know, and uh, we don't have uh, so obviously anymore, particularly one party. I don't mind saying. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we, um, you know, it must've, it must've been really an interesting experience for you because like just having you talking about the people behind the scenes, because you, you literally wrote, your last book <laughs> is a lot about that, right? The people who are these these people that you don't see who put the performance and the ceremony together. Um, I, I like you to talk about you know some of the symbolism of the ceremony, which is the other many aspects you've written about in your academic work. Uh, and and just to start off, there's one particular thing I have to ask about because I'm I'm just curious. There were photos of. The, holding a crowns over their heads, but they're connected to these sticks. What? What? It was this. What was that all about? <laughs> <laughs> so, so first of all, um, thank you for reading my book because only somebody who had read my book would have picked up that theme that runs through it. So, very good, Sean. Uh, thank you very much. You are the best interviewer. Uh, First of all, the crowning. Let me deal with that really quickly. Uh, so a wedding ceremony, actually, this dovetails nicely. A, a wedding in, a, in the Orthodox Church, and this was a wedding like any other in that respect, a wedding like any other. It was a royal wedding, an imperial wedding of the heir to the imperial house. But it was also the same service that would be used for Ivan Ivanovich Ivanov, right? It's, it is... Uh, governed by the ancient traditions, liturgical traditions of the church. Now, weddings are actually two service, uh, services that have today, and really since the 17th century, been combined. Uh, the first part is the abruchenia, which is the betrothal. That's when the wing, ring exchange happens. The second service is called the vinchania, or the crowning service. And that is when the couple is crowned, as you saw. Um, now, because uh, the service is long and the crowns uh, typically aren't worn, largely because of the, of the requirement, uh, the custom for the bride to wear uh, a kika, a, um, a, a, a sort of elaborate uh, headdress for a woman. And so a crown doesn't easily fit over it. And then the whole question of the veil. It became traditional to hold the crowns over the head by the uh, 
maid of honor and the the best man or someone. And um, if you don't have a little handle, it gets kind of rough, <laughs> right? It's, it's like you leave there with a Popeye arm, right? You know, so uh, it, it's very common in uh, the Orthodox Church to have handles on the crowns so that you don't have to elevate your hand and your arm and then it gets tired. Actually, does it, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just have to. So here, here is what I the, I had three ideas of what 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 this was because I didn't don't know any of this, of course. One, I, first of my immediate reaction was, oh, this must be a COVID thing. But then I was like, well, it's also Russia, so maybe not. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, so maybe it's because more seriously, maybe it's because the I I had this idea of like the crown on the head as symbolically important for the the uh, coronation of the tsar and since russia doesn't have a tsar i mean officially um <laughs> you it you can't really that the crown really can't touch the head it's kind of just hovering above this was my kind of symbolic interpretation and then of course i was thinking well maybe because it's just the thing is heavy <laughs> right and walking around with this is a little too much so but yeah the answer is c on that yeah um, but <laughs> actually the crowns are, are really quite important i write about this actually in my uh in the program that the crowns really are uh well the the crown the uh, married couple is being crowned with uh, honor and it's a symbol of the honor of the institution of marriage but more importantly the crowns are actually linked to martyrdom uh orthodox icons depict ma martyrs with crowns crowns of glory as they're called and uh, one has to remember that in the Christian notion of the sacrament of marriage, uh, you're martyring yourself when you marry for your spouse. You're surrendering your will to your spouse. So that uh, it's actually a rather beautiful, um, beautiful notion. St. Athanasius the Great actually said at one point that we, um, a, a, a husband climbs the cross of his wife, meaning that he sacrifices himself to the will of of, of his spouse. So the idea being, you know, the, the pathway to heaven, whether it's monasticism, which is of course the complete surrender of one's will to the abbot and to Christ and sort of suppression of all self self-interest. So to the other pathway to salvation, which is marriage, you really only have these two marriage, which um, is uh, the surrender of the will, not to an abbot, of course, but to, your spouse. So that's really what the crowns are meant to, to, to symbolize. Now, the interesting thing uh, about, the, uh, about this, and this goes back to your, your question about tradition and innovation. Uh, so there are these two elements of a wedding service, the, the Abruccini and the Vincania, the um, uh, betrothal and the crowning. It was decided uh, that um, that the uh, the service the services would be split, unlike uh, normal cut, and this is absolutely allowable. In fact, it is the way these services were done in uh, in the 16th century, uh, quite commonly, and before that. Um, but it was decided to revive that. Why? Because they wanted to do the abruchenia, the the uh, ceremony of betrothal at the Patyevsky Monastery, the Patyevsky Monastery, which is in Kastrama, which is where Michael Romanov and his mother were held up 
in 16, February 1613, when the Zimsky Sabor elected Michael Romanov to be Tsar. It's the place, the destination to which this grand procession from Moscow made its way to proclaim uh, Michael Romanov as Tsar, the founding of the, of the Romanov dynasty. So because there are really only two members anymore of the imperial house, just by the way, like it was when it was Catherine the Great and Paul I, and Paul I gets married. He actually marries twice, but his wife dies and his first wife dies in childbirth along with the child. And the second wife, however, has four sons and a number of daughters. And it's really, he's really the refounder of the Romanov dynasty. Paul I is. Uh, in a way, this marriage represents, you know, the refounding of the, of the dynasty. So that symbolism, I, I love, I was not involved in the decision to do that. That was other people, but I loved it. I thought that the, the symbolism of this was, uh, deeper than most people were going to catch, especially outside of Russia. So I'm glad to get the chance to sort of talk about that. On the other hand, you know, the Vinshadia took place in St. Petersburg, not in Moscow, but in St. Petersburg, the imperial capital, right? And there the connection was with the the imperial house as it was, you know, at the very end of its uh, reign. So the effort really was to try to connect, and I think it was successful, the entire history uh, the early modern and modern history of the dynasty uh, in this wedding. So it's not really the wedding of the century; it's a wedding of four centuries. And how did this how did this play in Russia? Like, what was some of the the response? You know, like I mean that you that you kind of got the feel of, and how it was being broadcast, and things like this. Yeah, that's still sort of shaking out. We're still sort of observing the response uh, to that. So. I can only really talk about the early feedback that we're getting. Uh, and I would say with almost all of it is, is positive. But what do I mean by positive? I, I, I mean, some of it look at it as um, a, a moment of nostalgia. Some look at it as a, uh, a opportunity to put Russia in the news in a favorable light when that isn't happening a whole lot right now. Um, some of it look, uh, some of, of the, the reporting has been, uh, very focused on the bride and groom who are very charming. They have done a number of interviews, uh, before the wedding that were really well received in the press. They did an hour long, um, uh, interview in St. Petersburg with Sobchak's daughter, right? And Sobchak that, uh, was really well received and they were both on it and, and uh, answered questions from callers and from the audience. And um, so there's, there's a fascination with them in a way. The wedding has been a kind of introduction of them as a couple to uh, the Russian population. The, um, the grand Duke lives in Russia now. Uh, so in, uh, in Moscow. So, you know, this has been in, in a way, a kind of a solidification of, of his or the dynasties, you know, return to Russia. In fact, some of the headlines say that. I read a couple of headlines where they talk about the return of the of the, the Romanovs to Russia. Well, the fact of the matter is that's been going on for a couple of decades now, actually, um, 30 years. But uh, now resident in Russia and uh, soon Victoria Romanovna, as she's now known, um, Her Serene Highness, 
Victoria Romanovna, um, will get Russian citizenship. Their plan is, God willing, they have children to raise them as Russian citizens. Um, so, you know, they're back. For, uh, and I think, uh, I think that that has been fairly uh, well received from sort of the, along the range of idle curiosity to, to, um, you know, approval about uh, what this all means. Um, there have been a, a few who uh, brought up sort of the dynastic issues, uh, you know, of, of Maria's mother's family and sort of the legitimacy of all of this. And, and there, and there are some others who are simply can't be bothered by this. They think that this is a, uh, a useless, pointless distraction, um, you know. But uh, actually, the the director of the of the um, chancery had a really good response to that, which was uh, that um, anything that um, strengthens Russia's connection with its own historical past in positive ways, uh, without. Uh, glossing over the realities of that past is a good thing. This is another reason why I so much like uh, working for this Zakatov fellow, because I think he's just so honest about, ab about things. Um, committed monarchist, committed um, supporter, tireless supporter of the Grand Duchess in the Imperial House. And yet, like the Grand Duchess herself, you should see some of her some of her statements, which I urge you to look at on the English side of, the, or even the Russian side of the webpage, imperialhouse.ru. The English side is, you know, stuff I've translated, where you know she has confronted Russia's past in an open and honest way, and uh, uh, and, and I find that I find that utterly refreshing and, and very modern, even scholarly in a certain level. Well, you started answering this a little bit, but how do you see this wedding and? and the reintegration of the Romanovs into Russian culture in terms of Russian identity? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I, I do think that the, the, the Imperial House wants to play a role in that. The Imperial House has stated numerous times, and by that I mean the Grand Duchess, that she is ready, if ever called, to assume her ancestral duties, uh, you know, to, to, to be crowned empress again. She is also very clear that this isn't the time for it. And very clear that even so, the imperial house has a role to play. It's a tricky role. And I, I have to say it's being played quite masterfully. That It's tricky because it's it's the role is to to play up and defend and connect with Russia's past and traditions, and at the same time be modern. So one of the ways I'd point out that the Grand Duchess has done this is that she's been instrumental in the creation of a program which aims to uh, create these interconfessional dialogue centers across Russia, and they've uh, a couple of them have already been uh, you know, furtively established in Muslim areas, particularly down in the Caucasus, but also um, in, in Central Asia, uh, her and, and in Moscow. Her idea is uh, to create platforms where uh, Muslims, Jews, Christians of various 
varieties can, and other uh, religious traditions, traditional religious traditions can meet to discuss issues of the day in a multi-confessional way. To not exclude religion from discussing matters of everyday importance, but to actually facilitate it and to con- and, and in a way to do it in a measured way, sort of to not to allow it to become uh, snagged by extremists. Uh, th- this is actually, I think, a really very important initiative uh, that she's that she's done. And it really, really does um, highlight her view that that we have to we, we can't just ignore the past. And, you know, by the way, that past includes the Soviet past. Yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of like I was in, in thinking about this. You know, you have this, you know, Russia, Russians, Russian history, and you kind of pointed to it with this this whole procession idea from Kostroma to St. Petersburg and the two parts and it's it's connection back to the beginning of the dynasty and then re, kind of a return of the dynasty, right? Russian history in the last, you know, several centuries has been a, a series of major breaks and, and ruptures, right? And then here you have this, this wedding in St. Petersburg and uh, of the Romanov descendants, um, you know, a kind of, as you said, a, a return to Russian society, the Romanovs are back. So how do you knit together? And this is the, the question of like, where does this symbolically sit in, say, the crafting of a Russian identity today? You know, how do how do you connect those different periods of Russian history, including the Soviet past in this? Yeah, it, it as I say, it's it's enormously difficult and it's it's being done so far really quite, quite Quite well, and, and perhaps the best way to look at that is how does the imperial house look at the Soviet years, um, where it was, you know, exiled, where it was besmirched uh, in in Russia, where its history was distorted in in ways that were self-serving and uh, self-promoting in inside the Soviet Union, uh, where there was genuine threat to lives, and, and in fact, where there was a an attempted genocide, right, of, of the Romanovs uh, by the by the Soviet regime. They they got a lot of them and they killed them all when they did. Um, at the same time, that the imperial house does strongly condemn those actions and works to correct the record, the historical record about uh, the, the the history of the Romanovs that had been distorted by by the Soviets, but also uh, to rehabilitate members of the Imperial House. It wants to fix the, the um, distortions and errors that were created by the Soviet uh, Union. At the same time, it recognizes uh, the sacrifices, the uh, achievements on certain, in certain areas, uh, some of which came at too high of a cost, frankly. Um, but nonetheless, the, the defeat of fascism, who can possibly, you know, uh, poo-poo that, um, and other technological achievements, economic achievements, there is an effort to be very, very balanced on this. You know, a lot of the emigre community of which I, you know, my mother's Russian, I grew up in it, is uh, black and white on this. Soviet bad, imperial good. The Grand Duchess is nowhere near that. She's willing to say that there were mistakes made 
by the Holy Roly, Holy uh, Royal Passion Bearer Nicholas II. She's actually willing to say that. Uh, he's been canonized, of course, by the church um, as a Passion Bearer. Um, at the same time, she's willing to say, sort of on the opposite end, that uh, the Soviet experience must be validated because people live through it. And she's very, very connected to the idea that she's Russian and has a connection with the Russian people. The Russian people suffered. She suffered too. Some of the Russian people who made her suffer, you know, were, were Russians. Um, at the same time, there were achievements. There was a humanity that has to be validated. So this is a very, very slippery uh, slippery, but very, very uh, you know, razor's edge kind of thing to walk, right? How do you how do you do this? And I'd urge listeners to go and look at what she has said. Her interviews, her statements on various issues of the day um, are really great places to go and, and, and find the mind of the Grand Duchess. And I think when you do that, you'll come away with an impression of a very, very modern royal who is patriotic, if you like, in the, um, you know, in the positive sense of, of that word. And that's tricky itself. I mean, most people don't think patriotism itself. It's sort of like the Edelweiss form of, <laughs> you know what I mean? I've actually said this in many contexts, right? It's just like when you're watching Sound of Music and you start singing Edelweiss, the little white flower, you know, it's kind of benign, right? And, and it's anti, anti, anti-extremist, anti-Nazi. So, okay, fine. Well, and it's, it, but it, there can be that, right? And, and this goes back to what I told you before when I noticed, you know, the, the, the selfless exertion of energy that so many people devoted to make this wedding come off well, um, which, which uh, again, I, I, I kind of thought it was, was rather aesthetically beautiful to see. With all these questions about what role the Romanovs are going to be playing in Russia and and I do know, too, I, I, I was reading about all these measured responses that were coming out of the Kremlin, like Shoigu punishing the honor guard and things like this. What do you think about the anxieties that were kind of enveloping the meaning of the wedding? You know, it's an interesting question that I think we still need to look at. I think there have been a number of moments since 1991, say, when the imperial family made its first visit back to Russia, St. Petersburg, um, when you could, in an almost uh, Kremlin in a logical way, right, reading the tea leaves, uh, apprehend what the Putin government thinks about the imperial house. Um, it's a bit of you know, reading the tea leaves, as I say, but um, the wedding certainly is one of those moments when you should, we should look at what the government is saying, not just in terms of what it's saying, but you know why it's saying it and how it's saying it, when it's saying it, to sort of figure out what the attitude is, because I, I think they're not actually saying what their attitude is. They're signaling what their attitude is, right? So this requires, you know, sort of the old skill set of of modern American and Western uh, historians who tried to glean from an article in Pravda or the arrangement of people on Lenin's tomb, what the hell was going on, right? And it, it sort of requires that again. Uh, there hasn't been an explicit 
uh, statement of it. I will say this, though. I do think from the 1920s on that there has been a recognition by, by, by Soviet and now post-Soviet authorities that the monarchy is quintessentially Russian and therefore must be kept an eye on. Um, you know, in a way, the, the Bolsheviks were bad. Um, they were bad legal scholars in the sense that they killed people who, during the 20s and the teens, killed Romanovs who weren't Romanovs and had no claim to the throne. Like there were a lot of already descendants of the Romanovs from an unequal marriage had no claim to the throne. They went and killed them anyway, right? So there's always been a sort of uh, heightened sensitivity towards towards uh, the the imperial family. And you know, some scholars in the West have looked at the relationship that the American government has had toward the uh, to the imperial house um, in exile during the height of the Cold War. Uh, they were certainly aware of, of their propagandistic um, potential. And to his credit, both Kirill and Vladimir uh, kept both the Soviets and the Americans in the West in general at, at arm's length. They didn't see themselves in, as pawns in either, in either, in either way. So we don't, don't really know. I mean, it's, I'm not really answering your question uh, specifically, because we don't really know. I think the, the I think the thing to say in response to that question, which is a good question, is we should study this. Uh, this is a dissertation topic. I think uh, someone should come along and and study how the uh, the imperial family in the 20th century was viewed, is viewed uh, uh, by by whatever government, post imperial government there there has been. You know, it, and the anxiety also comes from even some of the Western reporting that I read in the sense of, you know, trying to trying to fit this wedding into a particular type of narrative about how we understand Russia today. And that is, you know, the Romanovs are back. Does this mean there's the Russian state is going to really embrace them and somehow establish some sort of conservative, reestablish some kind of traditional Russian nationalist, blah, blah, blah. Um, it, so and they've already done yeah. that. <laughs> well, yeah, but they, you know, they've done that without <laughs> in fully incorporating and embracing and even giving some sort of official, you know, position for the royal family. And th- and that 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 ang- that I saw that anxiety coming from another side as well, uh, from particularly in in the American press. I don't know if you have any any comments on how it was covered. Yeah. The um, the New York Times notwithstanding, I got to know the uh, the, the new um, uh, Moscow um, chief. Uh, she she interviewed me for the New York Times. I thought she did a great job. She's smart. She she knows Russian history. Frankly, though, a lot of other articles, including the one in the Washington Post, which I otherwise rather like that newspaper um, a lot. Um, Got a lot of things wrong, and there and there certainly was a certain tinge of anxiety, maybe is the word, but I, I also thought maybe mild hostility to the to to all these happenings, suspicion, maybe the better word, um, because they don't really uh, they didn't really get it that this was really this wedding had enormous cultural significance, and uh, one might say symbolic content 
but it had no current political uh, implications. It, it was a private affair. The state facilitated some of this. The church enabled some of this, but this was uh, this was a wedding of two people, um, two significantly important people now. But it wasn't, um, you know, a state affair in that in that respect. Putin didn't show up, right? The patriarch himself didn't serve at it, although the Metropolitan did. Um, so it, it it seems to me that uh, there was a little bit of an overreading of this on on a certain level, and I and I say that, you know, even while I point to the significance of it, this is this was a remarkable event, um, first time in 117 years, right? All of that. Uh, at the same time, nobody, at least I haven't been privy to any uh, discussions that uh, talk about a restoration of the monarchy. In fact, the director of the the director of the chancellery, a few days after the wedding, reposted, recirculated on uh, Facebook an old interview, which I had translated. This is going back a few years. The Russian text of an interview with the Grand Duke, the groom, uh, in which he basically said, you know, it's not time for a restoration right now. He repeated his mother's view that right now Russia needs a presidency. And where things go from there, well, the Russian people did, will decide that. But right now, it's it, it, it's interesting that he kind of left the door open, though, right? <laughs> right now, I mean, so that supposes maybe sometime down the road. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, you know, that's right. They do. They do leave uh, his mother, mother and son, do that because uh, they, they can't do anything else. They they take their role as the defender of the fundamental laws very, very seriously. And uh, uh, that means that if there's a restoration, they would oppose someone else being named emperor. I mean, someone would come along and say, let's make uh, Putin the emperor. They would say, no, that's, there is somebody right now. The Grand Duchess isn't the claimant. She is the de jure, if not de facto, the de jure, I'm sorry, excuse me, uh, Yes, the Zor, in a way, she, she is the empress right now. She's just not de facto the empress, but she is the de jour empress. And uh, so she doesn't like it when journalists say she's the claimant. That's not her position at all. The imperial, the, the, the fundamental laws say there is not to be any vacancy in the imperial throne. It's supposed to immediately transfer to the next person. And so it has, she insists, all the way down to her. And God forbid it would be any day soon, one day her son, right? By the normal operation of the laws. And by the way, we should notice that, that the monarchy uh, stands for law. It did before even the revolution. And of course, you know, we're talking about, you know, the, the, the law of succession and maybe not other things we wished it included. But as, as, I, as I put it in both of the books that you interviewed me about, um, the very first limitation on monarchical power in Russia was not the October Manifesto and the fundamental laws that are produced after, you know, coming out of that. The very first limitation on monarchical power was issued in 1797 by Paul I when he promulgated the law of succession, which handed the succession over to the law. 
So it was a limitation on the power. The emperor no longer could name his own successor. The law did that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, just to finish the thought, since the revolution, that law has become even more important because it's been the only thing that the, the, the Romanov family could clutch onto, really, as a link to the past in terms of its identity as, as a Romanov. It has determined who is a Romanov and who isn't, right? And I'm thinking now of all of those male, male members of the dynasty who um, uh, you know, descend from the imperial house but aren't members of the dynasty uh, today. And finally, um, is there one moment in the ceremony that for you will stand out that you will always remember as a, as a key moment in your experience? Oh, wow. What a good question. There are so many. Um, you know, the thing that flashed into my head, uh, this is what I guess I'll go with. Um, after the wedding, the bride and groom and all the bridesmaids, including one special one, uh, exited the western doors of the cathedral, the side that sort of faces the old senate and uh, uh, synod. And uh, they stood there for a while and, and took photographs. Uh, lining the, the stairway down were officers in a unit that had been uh, assigned by their commander the commander of the Leningrad defensive um, military district um, to serve at the wedding. Uh, and uh, they had shield, uh, their swords out in a sort of form of an arc. Uh, and uh, the bride and groom are there. I was standing next to them too, a little further off. And um, the honor guard sort of, unsheathes their swords and holds holds it out. And the bride and groom are at the, the top uh, around the colonnade and uh, they kiss. And uh, I remember, I, I saw the kiss from the side, but I later saw the photographs, which which were really, really nicely done with sort of, you know, the arc of all these swords. And, but I, I prefer my image of it, uh, my sort of from the side memory of it, which, which was, uh, official and private put together, right? So the, the official being, you know, here's the honor guard, swords, all of that, big limousine waiting for them to come down to. And and then uh, a man and his wife kissing. And uh, it was a it was a rather long kiss. <laughs> it was a genuine kiss of, of a bride and a groom who love each other. And I have to say, that's the thing that, uh, that, uh, that sticks with me too, that, um, you know, it reminded me that this was uh, about uh, kind of about them and, and, and about sort of their love for each other and without getting gushy. Um, that, that's, the, that's the one thing I remember. Yeah. As I'm listening, I, I came, I'm thinking this question, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to not ask it. I'm, remember, I'm remembering the, you know, there's been this increased affinity in Russia to the communist Bolshevik cause. And, and this, so this wedding in that context feels really different than like a UK or British or whatever other kind of wedding, for example. And, you know, describing your 
or the imperial house and your role in the imperial house, you seem to see space for royalty in Russia. And I want to know, hear more about what you think that space looks like. I do see a space, a role for royalty in Russia. Uh, that space can take many forms. I, I like very much what they're doing now, which is uh, having a physical presence in Russia, involved in charitable and educational, cultural things. Um, by their very presence and in engagement, being a kind of reminder of um, Russia's antiquity um, and continuity of its history. Uh, because the modern day Romanovs are here, but they descend from people that lived through the Soviet experience, that lived through the imperial experience, that lived through the pre-Petrine experience, right? So just by being who they are, they, they represent this kind of continuity. I think that's already a constructive role um, without talking about uh, a restoration. Uh, if you ask me personally what I think, uh, you know, I will say I, I'm all for restorations. Um, but there are restorations and restorations. I, I think uh, no, one, no one is talking about restoring the autocracy. That would, that would require you to go back to the time of Alexander III anyway, because Nicholas II really wasn't uh, at the end. He was a constitutional monarch. I mean, it was a flimsy thing, but uh, it, he still couldn't do a lot of things. Um, uh, so so I, I, I think that the idea of a restoration is, is potentially very useful for Russia to, to get some uh, found, uh, founding in the, into its own identity and, and past. But I would also point out that um, I actually think that constitutional monarchy is a, is a redundancy because a monarchy since Montesquieu has meant law. So when you talk about the restoration of the monarchy, what you're really talking about, seems to me, um, is uh, the rule of law on a certain level. I, a lot of people will disagree with me on it, and that's fine. But what I mean by that, though, especially, is, is, is that this family, this particular royal family, has defended itself against its own relatives and some elements of the emigre community some elements of the uh, culture of culture inside Russia itself by resting on the fundamental laws. So it's already kind of hardwired to think of itself in legal terms. It calls itself legitimists in the very, at the very root of the word is, you know, the Latin root for law. Um, so were there to be a restoration uh, it would be it would be fun to watch how that happened. Uh, one would want to watch it closely. Nobody would want to watch it more closely than the two now three Romanovs that there are, uh, because that would be a process that would have to come from outside, right, from from beyond them. But I think that you know, and I'm an I'm an early modernist, right? So I study the period in which monarchies all across Europe became rooted in law and Fran they begin writing these laws of 
of, of succession. They begin writing constitutions. They begin talking about fundamental laws and that, that affect other aspects of political life in, in, in their realms. They begin sharing power with first the aristocracy, but then of course, the commoners. Um, so I already, as a, just as an historian, I'm not scared off by the whole concept of monarchy because I study a period in which um, it did it did things to move in advance culture forward and science forward. I mean, think about the Academy of Sciences in France or the UK or or Russia itself, all founded by monarchs for for really you know, national aggrandizing reasons, but all did really good things in terms of advancing science, right? So um, I come from this very much, again, as we started in this interview, from um, the perspective of my own research, which sensitizes me and desensitizes me in a way to, to certain things, you know. That was Russell Martin. Russell Martin is a professor of history at Westminster College focusing on autocracy, marriage, power, and the Romanov dynasty in early modern Russia. He is the author of many books and articles, including A Bride for the Tsar, Bride Shows, and Marriage Politics in Early Modern Russia. His most recent book is The Tsar's Happy Occasion, Ritual and Dynasty in the Weddings of Russia's Rulers, 1495 to 1745, published by Cornell University Press. Okay. Uh, well, you know, Rusana, since uh, you didn't participate in this interview, but you listened to one of the the cut of it, um, I thought I we'd start with you to to get some thoughts. So, what did you think? Yeah, just like you, I didn't know much about the existence of uh, Romanovs today. Well, I mean, I guess I kind of knew, but I didn't really, really know about Maria and her son. Um, so, yeah, that came all. This whole, when you told me about the wedding, you were like, did you hear about the wedding? I was like, whoa, what? And then I had to go online and like learn all about it. And um, I guess what I learned from the episode was that the wedding had immense cultural significance, but very little political valence, right? As, as uh, Russell told us. They don't, like Maria and George, neither of them think that now is the time for monarchy in Russia, although they leave the door open. Yeah, but but let's be honest here. Like, you know, the monarchy, regardless of how it was eliminated, is hasn't been in Russia for over 100 years. And it it is a bit strange, I think, that they leave the door open as if... This is a potential in some future possibility. I, I, I don't know. I think it's worth kind of pointing out that oddity. Right. I mean, I have no idea how that would look like or like who would voluntarily give them the power to to get back onto the political scene. Um, right. Or whether it be simply symbolic. Right, where you have monarchs who have no power at all, but they just kind of, I don't know, have falls and charity events and stuff like that. Like the British monarchy. Yeah, like the Brits. But yeah, I have no idea. Maybe you guys have some thoughts. 
Uh, what about what about you, Margaret? Well, yeah, with this whole question of leaving the door open, he certainly makes me ask myself what I never expected to ask, which is definitely a compliment to him as like a scholar and historian. And that is like, are there potential benefits yet to be seen if we were to somehow transition into a monarchical system today? I mean, what am I missing here? Like, I we grew up or at least I I grew up with this assumption that like within one century, the entire Western world, probably more like 50 years or something, really short amount of time, the entire Western world decided that monarchy is not working anymore, time to move on to a new order. And But then he also like notes at the end of the interview that monarchy has like done a lot to move society forward. And so I, I would be curious to hear more about like how much of that really has to do with monarchy versus how much of it just has to do with like the nature of like human social progress, whatever. Um, but could the same be said? So saying that, you know, looking back and saying and whenever everyone kind of mutually decided monarchy's done, monarchy's over, could the same be said for the political schematic that like we see today? I mean, I don't know. It's not to say that I'm a monarchist, but I definitely appreciate the question coming to light. First off, it, it sounds like a question. It, it sounds to me, it's an issue that sounds so anachronistic. This idea that, you know, the even, you know, the question of is a return to a monarchy or autocracy really um, is possible. However, and I wish I would have asked Russell this because but I didn't think of it at the time. You know, Russia today is is increasingly in popular media and to, by some scholars referred to as an autocracy, right, under Putin. And I, I wonder what, you know, Russell, how Russell would respond to the, what I think is an anachronistic label being placed on Russia today. And given his at the end of the interview where he's talking about law and what he means is like a law of succession, how he would respond to this use of, of autocracy. Um, I, I'm, it's unfortunate that I, that I didn't think of it at the time to ask him, but I'm sure I'll inter talk to him some other time and ask him that question. Yeah, and it also seems like the a difference between, I mean, with monarchy, you who gets to be the ruling party has entirely to do with just like primogeniture. And... So, I mean, is there, do we want that? <laughs> do we, are we tired of voting? I mean, I don't know, maybe. Well, well, Rosanna, you, you're, you're there in, in Russia. Have you had any like conversations or what's the, what is your feel of the reaction to this by, you know, people quote unquote on the ground? <laughs> uh, reporting from the, <laughs> from the field here. Um, well, it's actually funny because you know, of all the places you'd think that people on Sahalin, you know, couldn't care less about what's going on in Petersburg or Moscow. But incidentally, um, to get back to the city and have this conversation with you, I hitchhiked from my residence in the woods. And um, so we stopped this truck and the guy, I mean, usually people who like pick you up, they're usually just bored out of their minds and that's why they just want to talk the entire way and that was the case and the guy was talking about everything starting from Putin all the way to like um US Russia rivalry I mean you could talk with any you could 
talk on any political subject with him, I guess. And he did mention the wedding. He was like, did you hear about this stupid wedding in the news? They're talking about the Romanovs getting married. This shit is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he was much more informed than I was. Um, And then he also, I think, started... like first he shared this real news and then he was like and then now the Romanovs are selling off the, the treasures they're selling off the royal treasures this is insane which which was I think just like the news spiraling out of control uh, yes so um yeah the people that Russell is talking about in the in the episode is definitely not ready for the return of the monarchs. And yeah, do they, so how do they, how does that compare to how the Romanovs see themselves in Russian culture? Like, are they just assuming a social or political capital that they don't actually have? That That is a good question because I, it's interesting how they see themselves and they see themselves as playing a role. And in some respects, and Russell explains this, you know, the role that they see themselves right now is is essentially a role that a lot of elites see themselves in. And that is this kind of philanthropic, you know, endeavors. Uh, clearly, you know, from what Russell said about how they view Russian history, the fate of the Romanov family. They're trying to reconcile themselves to the realities of the present. It's not like they're coming in and looking to, you know, uh, it, it's not like a. they're not calling for a restoration in the sense of like the restoration after, say, the French Revolution, where you just wipe the slate from all of the political changes, um, you know, putting aside how impossible that is. That said, it's really interesting to me, you know, Russell made this point where the way that the wedding unfolded, where they split the ceremony into two, and the first part was in Kostroma, where Mikhail Romanov in 1613 was elected, and then they made this connection of, you know, the second ceremony in St. Petersburg, which is kind of like a, you know, their book ending, A, you know, 1613, and then now they're back, their return. And I, I found this, you know, symbolically really interesting just by the fact that they see themselves as having an important place in Russia. And that this wedding was an opportunity to introduce the couple as like a, as prominent figures in Russia. I think this whole question of them being back is really interesting. Uh, I, I think Russell also mentions in the podcast that, in fact, it has been for 30 years in the making. And, uh, well, I, I think it's interesting because it, it kind of uh, assumes that there is a, a continuity between Imperial Russia, Soviet Union, and post-Soviet Russia, which, in fact, is debatable and you know this question has great historical importance i mean like depending on what position you take you would have like completely different outcomes even like for myself like in my own say like research work i'm like well do i treat this space as like some kind of historical continuity or do i separate these into three distinct 
um, states or, I don't know, spaces, phases, whatever you call it. Well, thank you both for your comments. Um, there, it's always very interesting to get some kind of feedback as to what you thought and how you interpret these interviews. Uh, and I appreciate you participating in this too, Margaret, for the first time. So I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please share it on social media, tell your friends, tell your pets, tell your grandparents, as long as they listen or just keep it playing, uh, just to get more statistics, because they're what are important today. And also, always, you can drop us a line on Facebook and Twitter or at the srbpodcast.org website and let us know what you think of the podcast, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, or what do you even think of some of our comments about these interviews. And as always... If you'd love to support us, please do. The SRB podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor. It relies on the support of individuals and other educational institutions to keep it completely free without any paywalls or advertisements, which I have to say I'm, I'm getting really annoyed by in podcasts, just endless advertisements. We don't want to do that here. So please help us keep it that way. Uh, go to the srbpodcast.org website and become a monthly patron by joining the SRB Table of Ranks. And until next week, bye. Stay tuned.